We are coming into uh, the last couple of hours, I guess, of, of our day together. And uh, I've been slightly nervous about doing a talk today, which I'm not normally nervous about. The reason I'm nervous is that I'm a, I'm a practitioner, not a theologian. Well, that's what I like to tell myself. But my team tell me I'm a theologian more than I'm a practitioner. And um, it's been my privilege over the last um, 15 years or so to try and enable psychological resources um, to be digested by Christians through offering a framework of spiritual understanding. And um, the way I describe this is my children hate medicine. And um, if they're sick the doctor provides a particular sort of banana flavor medicine which is disgusting and doesn't taste anything like bananas um, and if you're a parent of small children and you're trying to get them to take this medication twice a day then you'll know it's quite a journey and you have to be creative in the way you package or repackage this medication I found that mixing it with Haribo is uh, a good way forward and sometimes in I guess in the Christian life we have to be able to digest painful medicine uh, we have to be willing to swallow painful medicine and, and, and sometimes Christians have a particular sensitive palate because they think actually this medicine isn't for me because I'm a Christian and I'm not attuned to this particular medicine and there should be some other sort of sweeter medicine uh, that would take away my emotional pain. The sort of medicine I like is the instantaneous healing of the Lord and uh, he's just going to do that thing where I feel no more emotional pain in my life anymore. That's the medicine I want. I don't want to have to go through uh, extensive therapy or uh, medication from my psychiatrist or uh, group therapy, whatever it is. So I guess some of the work I've been doing is about helping Christians to take appropriate medicine. And um, someone challenged me a little while back and they said, well, they said, well, come on, what's the theology of mental health? And I was like, no, 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 we're not going to do that because that would be far too boring and theological. Let's stay in the practitioner place and we'll just do it tool by tool. And um, I fobbed them off, but actually in my heart I thought, yeah, you know what, this is so much more important than um, I'm giving it credit for. And I found this really hard to actually vocalise. And if you all do go to sleep, I I absolutely empathise with you. But there's something about understanding why you're doing something that can empower you to do it more effectively. And it seems to me that without a clear theology of mental health, changing the conversations in our churches about mental health will never really find its fruition. If we don't really know why we're doing this, then we're never really going to do it effectively. And theology is not the preserve of the theologian or the academic. Theology is our business. If you're in this building today and you count yourself a Christian, you are a theologian. Because theology is ultimately an unpacking of what we believe about God. They're the guiding principles of what we believe God has said. And so everything that you enact in your life is an outworking of the theology that you carry in your heart. The trouble is that we often don't bring that undergirding reason, that undergirding practice into mind in a way that can be scrutinized we just assume that everyone's got this and therefore you know it's okay and we can kind of get off with business as usual 
For decades, mental health has been a peripheral consideration in some church traditions and and more completely addressed in others. But in, in the last 10 years, we've experienced something of a social revolution as far as mental health is concerned. When I had a breakdown in uh, 2005, which I've spoken probably far too much about, the church was a very hostile place to bring your mental health uh, you know, into the light within. Whereas today we have cultures which are much, much more open, partly because our societal culture is much more open. But we need to be able to articulate our theology effectively if we're going to mobilise the church to serve the needs of the poor. And mental health is an issue of poverty. Mental health is an issue of universal poverty because 37% of the UK prison population or 31,000 people have mental health issues at any one time in our UK prisons. And Jesus has called us particularly to take care of the prisoner. In 2016, there were 40,161 incidents of self-harm in UK prisons. 41,000 incidents of self-harm amongst the prison population, which is around 45,000. The issues of mental health and understanding mental health theologically are the issues of poverty. In 2018, there were 6,859 suicides in the UK. And that's an 11.8% rise on 2017. An 11.8% rise. If you think about that in demography, I mean, that's a phenomenal rise for a culture that's becoming more emotionally aware. Wouldn't you have anticipated seeing something of a social revolution around mental health in the last 10 years, that it would be a decrease in suicide? And yet there's been a 10% increase. The UK has become the self-harm capital of Europe, with 12.8% of our children and young people having at least one mental disorder. More than 10% of our children and young people are struggling with their mental health. And a theology of mental health is a theology of poverty, and a theology of poverty is something that we absolutely must understand. In Proverbs 14, 31, it says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. And I think we're in the business of honouring God today. So rather than mental health being something that's a peripheral consideration theologically in our churches, it's a primary consideration. You know, CAP are here today because actually mental health issues amongst people in debt are significantly higher than they are amongst the general population. We are connecting with uh, organisations involved in in prison ministry, in, in youth crime, because actually mental health considerations are the considerations of the poor. So when we talk about caring for the poor and homeless, we're not just talking about poverty and homelessness in material terms. We're talking about mental health concerns and considerations. I've spent a significant amount of time managing a homeless shelter at HDB. It's the largest homeless shelter in Kensington and Chelsea. And of those people who use the shelter on a weekly basis, more than 80% of them are actively struggling with mental health issues. Addiction issues are so often associated with self-medication because of significant and enduring mental health concerns. So to see mental health as a peripheral consideration is to miss out on its impact in poverty. So how do we formulate a theology of mental health? Well, a theology of mental health is based on an understanding of what we believe about ourselves. And we have to understand ourselves if we're going to understand a theology of mental health. Most secular models exclude the soul in their understanding of treatment. And 
most religious models exclude the mind in their model of treatment. And so what we find is that, that the world is excluding the soul and that the church is excluding the mind and we're wondering why people aren't getting well. Cartesian duality is this idea that matter and mind exist, if you like, in a contained containers alongside one another. Uh, in a human model, that would be the physical and the mental, but in a spiritual model, that's often the spiritual and the physical. We just exchange um, psychological for spiritual in the church. We say, well, you're a vessel, a body, and you've got a spirit in it. Not quite sure where the mind fits in, so let's just deal with these two things. And in the world we have, well, you know, your spirituality is only an outworking of your psychology, so we just need to do with your psychology and your body, and then we'll find healing. Monism is this idea that actually everything comes from one source. So there's physicalism, which is this idea that actually out of the body everything else flows. We just need to really make sure people are physically well, that they sleep well, they eat well, and they do a modicum of exercise, and then their minds will be well. So we have a very physically driven approach to mental well-being, which you'll hear some people exonerate. You just need to exercise, you just need to sleep, you just need to eat better, and then you'll get well. And that's something of what uh, Tanya Marley I was discussing with us earlier on. Then there's idealism. We're all idealistic here, aren't we? Everyone's a bit idealistic. But idealism is the idea that if we just sort out our minds, then our matter will follow. Or the reason you're struggling to exercise or even walk is because your mind is slowing you down. If we could resolve the issues of your mind, your body would follow. And there's what we call neutral monism, which is organized around the idea of the self with a third substance that actually mind and matter are somehow convincingly and cohesively linked and they're linked through the spirit. That actually there is a Trinitarian model of self where everything is united in the spiritual. Peter Scazzaro writes, the overall health of any church or ministry depends primarily on the emotional and spiritual health of its leadership. In fact, the key to successful spiritual leadership has much more to do with the leader's internal life than the leader's expertise, gifts, or experiences. The spiritual realm is the unifying reality in the essence of the whole person. So what I want to suggest to you is that is that neutral monism, the way we understand ourselves in a Trinitarian model, which is the model from which we can extrapolate a good theology of mental health, that actually neutral monism is this Trinitarian self-construct. This sense that actually we are created in the image of God who is three parts, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and we're created in the image of God, that we're physical, mental and spiritual beings. And actually if we're going to treat the whole self, we have to treat the whole self. That's why soul time is a good thing to do. Alongside the medication you might receive from a psychiatrist like Rob or Chi-Chi, alongside the therapy you might experience in a group or the community you might find in Sanctuary or Kintsugi Hope or Think Twice, that actually we have to attend to the needs of the whole person. A theology of mental health sees people not as mental health problems be fixed, but as children of God who need to be loved. We are not here in the business of fixing problems or even fixing people. We're in the business of encounter, of wholeness, of fullness. And Jesus is found amongst the fear. In John 10, 20, he himself is called raving mad. This Emmanuel, God with us. God incarnate, his presence, mind, body and spirit. Pope John Paul II wrote in 1997, the image of God is people with mental illness 
Whoever suffers from mental illness always bears God's image and likeness in himself, as does every human being. So if we're going to understand the theology of mental health, we've got to understand it in terms of our Trinitarian monism. You might not want to share that down at the pub. (laughs) Oh yeah, do you know what I mean? You're really Trinitarianly monist. But understand for yourself in terms of your theology, what do you believe about yourself? Do you understand yourself as Trinitarian in being? Mind, body and spirit created in the image of a Trinitarian God. What we believe God believes about us matters. If we believe that the spirit is the most significant thing, we end up in matter dualism. Mental health is then of little significance because people say, oh, well, you know, the spirit is redeemed and the rest is going to just burn. So you'll be fine. Just cling on to life now until you get to heaven. Mental health becomes a sign of spiritual weakness. Oh, you're depressed. You haven't got enough faith or hope or you're not choosing to live as Christ has commanded us. Mental health could become even a sign of spiritual virtue. Oh, you're feeling anxious at the moment. God is testing you to see whether you trust him enough. Or mental health becomes an aspect of spiritual supernatural battle. Oh, clearly you're fighting the demonic realm. You just need to fight harder to keep your head above water. If we believe that God believes that spirit is greater than matter, then we become dualistic to the spirit and we lose sight of our Trinitarian monism. But if we hold fast to the Trinitarian reality of our self-construct, we find instead that mental health is significant to the whole person. That actually being encountered with Jesus affects your body, affects your spirit and affects your mind. But actually living well in the body affects your spirit and your mind. And living well in your mind affects your spirit and your body. That when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers. And when one part is blessed, every part is blessed. So Paul offers us these illustrations of a unified self, a vine, a, you know, this incredible body where every part is linked where we're not compartmentalized and divided against ourselves because a house that's divided against itself cannot stand. And we at Minor Soul are passionate about integrated psychological treatment because we believe in an integrated psychological self. And these aren't constructs that are absent in the world of psychology. This sense of of unity is evident in some of the leading psychological voices of history. How can we find integration with our shadow? How can we understand the, both the tip and the tail of the iceberg? You know, Freud and Jung and others have brought these illustrations to life, but there's no one who's brought them to life like Jesus Christ. Because he said we're mind, we're body, and we're spirit in union. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And that is only available to you if you understand there is an integration between all parts of yourself. Power in weakness. It's not a strong mind with a weak body. It's not a strong soul with a weak mind. It's actually that we're strength in unity. Actually, we are here vessels of the presence of the living God. Well, what is well-being? If we can understand the self as the Trinitarianly monist self, what is well-being? What is it we're seeking? The World Health Organization says that mental health is a defined as state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her own community. What I like about the World Health Organization's diagnostic is it doesn't try and me- measure your mental health 
It's actually a hugely individualized but very generalized model. The key thing here is that the individual can realize his or her own potential. It it doesn't offer us a benchmark of what potential reaching might look like, but it has to be our dream and our aspiration that everyone in our communities can reach their full potential to the glory of God. And we are enablers of potential reaching. It seems to me a travesty that so many people have come into church communities and they've been told that they have to be fixed in order to be useful. We've sought to try and extend their potential before we've tried to realise the potential that they can actually achieve. If we're so busy identifying potential potential in people, we'll always miss the true potential. Say, oh wow, you look incredible. You must be capable of incredible things. Well, actually, I've got a limited condition. That means I, I can't achieve everything that you think I might be able to. Oh no, that's rubbish. We just need some freedom in Christ and then you're going to be off to reach the potential potential that you potentially have. And sometimes inadvertently Christian leaders, myself included, can, can sort of can use their prophetic gifts to overlay a present reality. And there's a fine balance in this theologically. Of course, we're called to hope for more, but not to denigrate the person. Actually, what we have to do is empower the person to reach their potential as they bring it. To say, actually, let's help you to realise your potential. And you know what? So often what happens is when we, when, we, when we enable a person to reach the potential that they bring, they find new potential. Actually, as we take someone on a journey, as they reach their potential, their confidence grows and their potential increases. But it's their potential and not our perception of the potential that they carry. We have to be happy walking with people whose potential seems to be limited. It was really moving to me to hear Tanya speaking so openly, honestly, about her experiences of having her potential limited. When you hear someone like that, with that kind of oratory gift, that kind of depth of personality speaking, you're thinking, wow, why aren't you on every stage in the UK? And then you're going, wow, you can only leave your house for two days every month. I live my life, she said, by teaspoons. Here's someone whose incredible potential is limited. And and yet, if we don't live with her in that limitation, we disempower her, we discard her, and we silence her. How can we empower those people whose potential is limited by their experience still meet their potential? So what's Christian well-being? What does it mean to live an abundant life? Does it mean complete healing or deliverance or the ability to endure or joy in difficult circumstances? I don't know it means any of those things specifically. What I do know it means being more Christ-like. It means walking like the wounded healer. It seems to me sometimes people cut Jesus off just above the ankles and he, he floats through the New Testament with his, um, with his shepherdly gown, which is very clean. And um, he's always smiling in a serene way and nothing ever bugs him. And um, I, I'm one of those people, who, I live in London, I cycle a lot and I've got to be honest with you, I've got to confess this right now, this is for my own benefit. I've, I've been swearing more than I normally swear recently. 
And I, you know, I know swearing is wrong and I have repented to the Lord of my swearing. But when it starts raining in London and it starts getting dark in London and, and you're on a bike and then like buses, taxis, Ubers who are like my worst nightmare for swearing um, and articulated lorries that are making deliveries to central London shops whiz past you and it's pouring with rain and it's misty and it's getting dark all of my anxiety begins to bubble up and I externalise as Chi-Chi, I'm looking at the personality disorder thinking this is me, I'm externalising I'm swearing at everyone <laughs> and I think oh Jesus he's so perfect he's such an unreachable goal and then I read the New Testament and he shed tears in John 11:35. He was filled with joy in Luke 10:21. He grieved in Luke 23:28. He was angry in Mark 3:5. Anguish and sadness came over him in Matthew 26:37. He showed astonishment and wonder in Luke 7:9. He felt deep emotional distress in Mark 3:5. C.S. Lewis says, "Do not despair. He knows all about you." He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on doing what you can. I love that. He knows what a wretched machine you drive. He knows. Keep on doing what you can. He's saying keep on reaching the potential that you can reach. That actually Jesus understands. Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. I wonder whether in formulating a theology of mental health we so often end up working on either end of the scale of eschatology and a theology of mental health has to be one which is rooted in some sort of eschatological perspective of course we all have an eschatological perspective whether we've realised it or not those of you who are used to using that word will know what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't will be thinking, well, I don't know that I have an eschatology, but you do because your eschatology is your interpretation of where you are currently living in the scheme of the eschaton. That is the scheme of God's presence in the world and the future times. And we have this present age, which was the age before Christ, uh, an age when there was the oppression of the people and the exile and the reign of sin and death. And then we have uh, the reign of Christ, the reign of the kingdom that is both now and not yet. And then we have the reign of Christ's return and then we have the coming age, which is the age of heaven. And so our world, if you like, our worldview is divided into these different ages. And our worldview and the worldview of the world are very different. The world thinks we're still living in this present age. When we're living in an age of the already and yet the not yet. And we're looking ourselves towards the age to come, an age which the world isn't looking for. But our theology of mental health is informed by the age we believe we're living in. If we believe we are living in the present age, that is the age of sin and death, then there isn't a lot of spiritual hope for those suffering from mental and emotional health issues because you can't attend to the whole person. If we are living in the coming age, that is the age to come, then we often have over-realised our eschatology and we believe that freedom from all illnesses and all mental health illnesses are available to us now. We just have to know how to access that particular healing. 
And so our theology is informed by our eschatology. And that's why in some churches, if you are psychotic, you have to have demons cast out of you because it's impossible to reconcile living in this current age, this age of the now and the not yet, and believe in a sovereign God. If our eschatology is over-realized, we tend to brutalize those with mental health issues because we need to force them into our theological persuasion. If our eschatology is unrealized, we tend to be very passive and say, well, you get what you get. Not a lot can happen this side of heaven. But Jesus has called us to live in light of the kingdom which is in your midst in Luke 17, 21, and the kingdom that is yet to come, Luke 22, 18. And you're saying that's a paradox. And as Martin Luther said, if it's not a paradox, then it's probably not God. Now, we have to live in the tension of the now and the not yet where mental health issues are concerned. We have to be happy not to leave a mental health issues into a tidy theology. But we do have to frame our experiences with a godly theology. And so, with that in mind, I wonder whether theology of mental health has been formulated in one of a number of different ways and it's sometimes helpful to understand that when people come into the world of Christianity and mental health they come with a theology in mind even if they haven't articulated it the first theology that we often come to this arena in is one of the theology of spiritual illness this is William Blake's image in the Tate Gallery of Nebuchadnezzar eating grass in Daniel chapter 4 There's actually only two real references to madness in Scripture, and this is one of them. The other one is Saul's madness in 1 Samuel 18.10. The fact is that neither story tells us an awful lot about madness. They identify a few symptomatic features of mental health issues, but they don't offer us any sort of a theological interpretation of that kind of madness. A theology of mental illness is one which is often sitting in that second realm, in the eschatology of the kingdom that has come, in that future realm. And as a result of that theology of spiritual illness, mental health is an outcome of sin or demonic activity. And diagnostic is often a measurement of someone's spiritual value. And then treatment is primarily of a spiritual approach. So in our churches and communities, we often actively advise people against psychiatric or psychological treatments and encourage them instead to choose more spiritual treatments. I cannot tell you how many emails I get every week from people saying, Will, have you got a list of Christian counsellors? I'm like, "Uh, what do you need it for? Oh, well, someone in my church is having a mental health breakdown and I I want to find a list of of, of Christian counsellors. And I'm like, that's great, but have you sent them to see their GP yet? No, I just want a Christian counsellor list. That's why I'm contacting you. Because the presumption is still that Christians with mental health problems should see a Christian counsellor, not a psychiatrist. That actually only Christian counsellors will understand. I'm always saying you don't need a Christian doctor, you do need a good doctor. You don't need a Christian counsellor, you need a good counsellor. You don't need a Christian psychiatrist, you need a good psychiatrist. When you're going to have heart surgery, you don't say, uh, I know that those guys who are all non-Christians are the best heart surgeons in the world, and that Christian guy who's got a really dodgy rep for, for letting people die on the operating table, but is a Christian, I want him. Because he's the Christian guy. 
You say, I want the best one. I want, I want that one over there. I want the best one. Why do we, why do we want to categorize or delineate this? Well, it's because we carry that belief that somehow the mind is the realm only of God and we shouldn't allow the secular psychology, psychiatry to play a part in healing. If we believe in the theology of spiritual illness, it leads ultimately to stigma and exclusion. And you know, we sadly get letters, quite regularly on our emails, from people who feel excluded from their churches. Not every church, but some churches we see people quite regularly leaving because they came forward for prayer and they were depressed. And they were prayed for, which was wonderful. But when they came forward the next week for prayer, there was a few raised eyebrows about why they'd returned for prayer since they received their healing last week. And then when they came back the week after, then there's a few people wondering well, actually whether they were spiritually disobedient because they hadn't accessed the, you know, the healing that was available to theirs in Christ Jesus. And then they would come back the week after, then the deliverance team is standing ready to receive them because clearly there's some sort of um, spiritual blockage which is keeping them from the healing which is already theirs in the name of Jesus. And then at week six, they think, I really can't take this anymore. I know I need prayer because I need encounter with Jesus because I'm three parts mind, body, and spirit in unity. And yet I don't feel like I can actually take the level of shame that I'm being approached with. And as a church, I want to say that if we have a theology of spiritual illness, ultimately we will push away the vast majority of people who have mental health issues and come into our Christian communities. Both Rob, Kate and I all believe in the healing power of Jesus. We've all seen people healed of different illnesses. But we are also very aware, just as 99% of people with physical complaints who come forward in church for healing don't receive healing, so it seems to be the case for that 99% of people with mental health issues. And yet our assumption is often it's going to be a one-for-one hit where mental health issues are concerned, even if it's a one-to-99 hit for every other sort of condition. If we aren't happy to sit with people, like we are with people with diabetes, week by week, encouraging them to take appropriate medication, take care of their illness, make sure they check their blood blood sugar levels, then we aren't really assisting. So a theology of mental illness is not a good theology if it's a theology of spiritual illness. The second theology which we might have, which is far less common in charismatic evangelical circles, but much more common in Catholic circles, is is the theology of religious virtue. And this is a picture of Joan of Arc, who was burnt at the stake on May the 30th, 1431. And she's a saint now, but in Shakespeare's Henry V, she appears as a witch who, um, uh, who, who... you know, comes in, in instruction to kind of fight against the English. The, 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 um, the reality is that Joan of Arc showed traits of psychotic disorder in her teenage years, and yet her psychosis was sort of deified and spiritualized, and um, she suffered as a consequence. And some people, particularly within Catholic traditions, find that their mental health issues are not taken seriously clinically because they are not deemed as spiritual illness but they're deemed as religious virtue hey it's great that you're going through this really dark season because this is where your spiritual metal is forged this hardness 
this challenge is because God is working in your life and he always works through your life in challenge. Now I'm deliberately, provocatively turning that language into charismatic Christian language because some of us have heard this before. You know, this dark night of the soul, this is where God will really reveal himself to you. Uh, this anxiety, this is how God's forging trust in your life. This psychosis, you know, what? maybe it's not psychosis at all. Maybe God is just revealing things to you in dreams and visions. A theology of religious virtue is one in which God causes mental health issues for his divine purposes. Emotional distress demonstrates virtue or brings a person closer to God. There's a spiritual etiology, whereas in the theology of mental illness it's demonic or evil that brings about a mental health issue in the theology of religious virtue it's actually god who who creates these experiences in order that your character might be formed and then treatment options often withheld for the sake of someone's spiritual growth mother Teresa was advised by her spiritual advisor archbishop perrier that her agony after 20 years of crippling depression was a grace granted by God and a purification and protection against pride following her successful work. And we look back on that and think, wow. But that wasn't just one letter that she received. She received countless letters from countless spiritual advisors to tell her that her depression was an outworking of God's control of her pride and that she should welcome it, not stand opposed to it. And of course, there have been countless others who have experienced a similar thing. If we believe in the theology of religious virtue, then we'll manipulate someone's illness to be God's doing. Surely that's a greater evil even than the theology of spiritual illness. At least in the theology of spiritual illness, it's the devil who's attacking you. In the theology of spiritual virtue, it's God who's the bad guy. Well, of course, some of you will be here and you think, wow, there's a real danger, Will, that we're going to get rid of all the theology and we're just going to medicalize everything. And you'll be right. There is a non-theology. It's a theology of medicalization. The non-theology of medicalization is not a theology because God isn't part of the picture. We go back to some sort of Cartesian duality or some sort of uh, idealism or physicalism that says, actually, you don't need to attend to the needs of the whole person. The non-theology of medicalization is one in which mental health issues have a purely material or psychological etiology. So it's something to do with your brain or your body. That's the reason why you're sick right now. And any religious experience is purely symptomatic of disease. So if you're, if you're, fe- if you're feeling spiritual joy or spiritual awakening, well, that can only be disease. Oh, you've become a Christian, really? Recently? Oh, wow. That's definitely an aspect of spiritual illness. You've started praying. I mean, are you hearing God speaking to you? Yeah, I am. I think we need to up your medication. Now, if we have a non-theology of medicalization, we shut down the third aspect of the person. We do away with the spiritual. And instead, we close down that track for the sake of recovery. Sadly, it's often the case in psychiatry that there's an assumption that every spiritual ideation, every spiritual experience is some sort of outworking of someone's psychotic disorder. And it is a very, very difficult area to work in and one that requires huge insight and sensitivity. But I know that Rob and Chi Chi, as psychiatrists, don't look at their clients in, in that way, that they have an integrated theology which, which acknowledges that God is at work in the lives of people with psychotic illness as much as he's at work in the lives of you or me today. 
So let's not patronise people with mental illness and assume that somehow God has left them for dust. Let's instead recognise that these voices might be confused and mixed, but God has not stopped speaking. God is still present. A non-theology medicalisation ultimately offers us no redemptive elements of mental health experience. There's no redemption to be had here. You broke your leg, now your leg is fixed. No one was trying to teach you anything. No one's going to do anything with that. There's no value in that. It was just inconvenient. When we believe in a God who redeems, a God who buys back, a God who turns our experiences for good, he doesn't intend them for ill. He doesn't make them happen, but he redeems them from his glory. Paul says in 4 Corinthians 1, 4, that we receive the comfort of the Lord so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You see, if you have a non-theology of medicalization, you can't offer the comfort that God has, has given to you, to others, because actually there's no redemptive elements to your recovery. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to share. There's nowhere to go. And so a theology of spiritual illness is not helpful theology but it's one that's often carried and there's a theology of religious virtue which is less carried maybe in this context but it's still carried and it's still unhelpful and then there's a non-theology of medicalization which we could lean towards but that would be unhelpful too and so we're left then to formulate a much more healthy and holistic theology which is one which we call the theology of mental well-being in luke 8 43 to 48 There was a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, behind Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding in and pressing you from every side. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she touched him. And how she'd been instantly healed. And then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. My favourite story in the whole Bible is this story. Because this is a story of 360 degree redemption. It's a story about the recovery of the woman. The recovery of her physical self. Because she had bleeding for 12 years. And it's the recovery of her mental self. Because because of her bleeding she was ostracised from society. And and deemed to be unclean. In fact she was labelled unclean by the religious laws of the time. And so she had no place in society. And so her mental health was severely damaged and diminished by that reality. But because of her ministration, she was also deemed to be unclean in the temple courts. And so she couldn't enter into worship in the temple as a child of God. And so her exclusion was both physical, mental and spiritual. Now Jesus could have healed her that day physically. He could have allowed her to touch the hem of his cloak and walk away. And she would have received a physical healing But let me tell you this, she would not have received a psychological healing or a spiritual healing. She would have remained that person who everyone went, oh yeah, that's the lady with bleeding. Oh, now she's lying to us and telling us that she's not bleeding anymore. Everyone knows she's been bleeding for 12 years and we're still not going to let her into the temple courts. It seems to me inhumane that Jesus would take this vulnerable woman broken on every level and then publicly in front of hundreds of people say, who touched my cloak? knowing full well it was this woman seems like the least pastoral thing you could possibly do but it was the most pastoral because Jesus restores the woman societally he says to everyone this woman is healed he restores her psychological well-being 
by affirming her belonging to community again. And then he restores her spiritual well-being. Not just that he enables her to participate in worship in the temple courts, but he, as the temple himself, affirms her faith. The faith of a woman who in a society would have been deemed as spiritually unclean and one of no faith. So Jesus' healing is psychological, spiritual, and physical. And that's why a theology of mental well-being is a good theology. It's a theology which has a neutral view of etiology. What that means is that we don't believe either way that it's a spiritual problem or a physical problem or a mental problem. It's just neutral. We have this reality. Let's not dig into why we have this particular illness. Let's just deal with the illness in front of us. Let's be neutral about the etiology of this particular illness. We recognise it's a continuum of experience. It's held in the eschatology of the now and the not yet. For some people, for a very small number of people, mental illness is a very transient, once-in-a-lifetime encounter that leaves and gives way to a life of impenetrably good mental health. I haven't met that many people with that experience. I would have loved to have been one of those sort of people. I still feel like I've dropped my keys down the drain every day. I still struggle with anxiety. I still struggle with low mood. My experience of mental health is a daily experience, and yet I'm healed, and yet I'm not yet healed. It's an integrated healing model that is medical, psychological, and spiritual. It tests the goods of psychology, psychiatry, medication, prayer, sanctuary groups, consigi hope groups, using soul time. You know, it's a whole deal. It's the whole package. It's rooted in dignity and identity offered to all of God's children. I spent some time working in a senile dementia clinic and I was a very, very heady young evangelist and um, passionate about everyone encountering the kingdom of God. And my tutor said, you're not going to do another evangelistic placement, Will. I said, oh, come on. I want to get out there and tell people about Jesus. He said, no, you're not. I'm sending you to a senile dementia clinic for eight months. I've never felt so depressed about anything in my entire life. I thought, this is a waste of my time. He said, no, this will make you. And I went into this clinic called the Linden Unit in Oxford's Churchill Hospital. And I just go there every week for a whole eight months of study. And it took about three weeks before I just started crying. Because I thought God had abandoned all these old people. Because my theology didn't enable me to understand that God still loved them. It wasn't the old people that needed to change, it was me. It wasn't God that needed to change, it was my interpretation of him. I misunderstood the love of God, that God loved all of those old people. They might have been unable to say their names or even remember who they were or what they did yesterday, but I know that God hadn't abandoned them. And God hasn't abandoned you. And God hasn't abandoned the people in the care of psychiatric services. God's still present. And a theology that recognises his presence is a good theology. It's also a theology that offers the potential of redemptive impact or personal transformation. Now, I don't like having an anxiety disorder, but I also know that through whatever ill I experience, God has used it for good. I'm standing here today, 15 years later, still talking about mental health. 
I believe we've made a difference as an organization. I believe we'll continue to make a difference. It's not that God made me ill so that I could help other people get well. It's that I got ill and God is redeeming and will continue to redeem my illness in order that we continue to do the work that he's called us to. He's not not making me well because he wants me to carry on this work. It's just a neutral experience. I know his love in this work and I'll continue to do it for his glory. And it acknowledges the integration between the mind, body, spirit as health and the context of our community. We are this body together experiencing this tripartite journey. Pope John Paul II, in this important 1997 piece of work, The Image of God and the People with Mental Illness, says, whoever suffers from mental illness always bears God's image and likeness in himself. You carry the image of God. And so if we just look at this next slide, here's a a view on the fourfold model. If you look at causation, you've got neutral causation going up the chart on the y-axis and spiritual causation going down to the bottom there and then on the x-axis, non-redeemed and redeemed. And you'll see the four different theologies there of which we are finding our place. So medicalization, which has neutral causation but is definitely not redeemed in terms of there's no spiritual outworking And then you've got spiritual illness, which has a high level of spiritual causation, but also is not redeemed, because ultimately it's about demons and evil. It's all bad. There's there's nothing that can come out of that space. And then you've got religious virtue at the bottom, which is about spiritual causation. God has done this to you, and it's, wow, it's redeemed, because actually, you know, God is transforming your life, but actually doesn't leave God in any sort of good place, because God is this master puppeteer who orchestrates terrible life transforming illness for people that he wants to shape into his children and then you've got a theology of mental well-being that that sits in a place of neutral causation but also offers redemption in its healing outworking now the trouble about theology is saying well are we making this stuff up will is this like do we choose which one we like you got to choose which one you agree with that's the key thing these exist you've got to ask yourself what is God saying what is it about the character of God and the way he's made us in his image that is the key question to understanding what theology looks like as I come in to close this uh, keynote I just introduce you to a few people which you probably already know because in times of affliction we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God if we don't believe in a redemptive model then we've looked behind God's incredible work of redemption in the history of mental health and the life of the church if we don't look to history we'll never find a good theology because mental health was something that Spurgeon knew in his fiercest depressions when he espoused the love and joy of God It was something that Martin Luther knew as he wrestled with chronic anxiety and depression as the father of the Reformation. It was something that Florence Nightingale knew when she cared for others while suffering herself from bipolar disorder, often going into acutely manic phases. And it was what John Bunyan knew himself when he wrestled with OCD while showing us the pilgrim's progress. And it was what William Cooper knew when following his suicide attempt, he wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain, filled with blood on the 25th of April 1800 and he says 
For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. John Newton, who was William Cooper's great friend in Olney in Bedfordshire, ran down the garden when he heard the cry from William Cooper's wife and he literally fished William Cooper out of the bath and nursed him back to health. And I think Newton, ugh, he just, his biography is such a mess. He wrote Amazing Grace while sitting on top of hundreds of slaves. Everyone thinks he cleaned up his act, but he was singing Amazing Grace while he was still shipping people in and out of the West Indies. He was a total mess, and yet he knew grace. And Cooper, who knew grace in his mind, just struggled because his mind was so contorted and just beaten down and weathered by depression. And between the two of them, one who was a mess and knew so much grace, and one who was so full of grace and still was a mess, they kind of worked out what love was in community. And they bound each other's wounds. And so to Cooper, amazingly, his friend became Christ, fishing, fishing him literally out of the waters of blood, restoring him to life. And out of that, he wrote the only hymns, which are probably the greatest hymns, I think, that have ever been written in the life and spiritual history of this land. My emotional maturity might be understood by the following I statements. I feel all my emotions fully and in a non-judgmental way. I value my emotions, but do not respond to their demands automatically. I'm aware that my emotions are not expressions of truth or proportionate to events. I realize that my emotions can change quickly or become entrenched over time. I know my emotions are influenced by benign factors like food, sleep, stress, hormones. I'm aware of how past experiences can exacerbate some of my emotional reactions. But I allow God to inform my emotions and invite his change as well as his comfort. You know, a theology of mental well-being is one that invites God in, that's accepting, that's supportive, that acknowledges the life of the whole person. You know, when Tanya closed her talk, she referenced a biopsychosocial model of theology. And I want to introduce it, but in a slightly different way. Because I believe that we've been called to not a biopsychosocial model of praxis, but a biopsychosocial spiritual model of praxis that actually working out what a theology of mental wellness and mental well-being looks like it has to afford the biological the psychological and the spiritual within the context of the social in 1 kings 19:4, elijah is suicidal he's running away from jezebel and he's already lit up the cow covered in water and everyone thinks he's amazing apart from Jezebel who wants to kill him and he's been running for days and days and days and he's exhausted and he's traumatised and he's distressed and he's saying just take my life I don't want to live anymore Elijah's suicidal he's had enough and you know what God could have said so many things to Elijah Elijah see the cow I lit up with lightning you know, Elijah, look, you know, you're doing okay. You're still, uh, you know, you're still alive. Could be worse. They could have caught you earlier. Elijah, haven't you received promises from my hand? Aren't I a good God? Elijah, you're letting the team down. You need to improve your faith. Elijah, you need to pull yourself up by your sandal straps. 
You know what God says to Elijah? Not very much. God doesn't criticise Elijah. God doesn't condemn Elijah. God empathises with Elijah. Instead, God responds in a biopsychosocial, spiritual manner. He says, the journey's too much for you. He gets him some food. And then he sends him to sleep. Which is always a good start. And then he gives him some more food. And then he encourages him to continue on the journey that he's already on. You know, a theology of mental health is an integrated biopsycho-spiritual one. One that integrates mind, body, spirit and community. And Jesus expresses that because Jesus embodies it. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, it says that he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And so a theology of mental health is one that people, sees people not as mental health problems to be fixed, but children of God waiting to be loved. Here I am, a child of God, made in his image, struggling in the body, but known and held in Christ, God has taken a seat with the estranged Christ, the mentally ill, those estranged, those struggling with separatedness. God has taken his seat in Christ with the estranged. I'd love to encourage us all to take our seats with the estranged today. Maybe the estranged inside the part of ourselves that we've cut off or we feel ashamed or embarrassed about. Or maybe it's the estranged in our church communities, those who feel excluded or discarded. Ultimately, know what God knows, that each of us are a child of God made in his image, that each of us are known and loved and gifted and called, and it's our job to enable one another to reach the potential that we bring into the room for his glory. No more and no less. Let's take a moment to pray as we finish. God, we want to know what you know and we want to feel what you feel about those who struggle in the mind. We want to pray right now that you would lift from us the prejudice of poor theology and you'd instill in us a new vision, a theology of mental well-being, that we might be agents of change and transformation in our communities, in both the mind, the body, the spirit and the community around each of those who we know and love with mental health issues. We pray, Lord, you would help us to pick up today the passion for the poor in mind, recognising that mental health has such a huge influence over every other area of life. We pray to fill us each with compassion and give us the resources that we need to do the work that you've called us to. And we pray in our own lives and in the lives of others that we would reach the potential that we bring into the room. In Jesus' name. Amen. I think that might have been God just confirming that that's what we were supposed to be doing. We're going to invite the panel up. Thanks so much, everyone.